May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word from the book of Acts 26, 12 to 19. Hear the word of God. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that when they receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, may be seated. Where there is no vision, the people perish. When I was just getting started in ministry some 25 years ago, this proverb was all the buzz. The idea was taken from the corporate world that all successful leaders must be innovative and creative visionaries. And so the logic ran. Ministers and missionaries need also to be visionaries as well. Successful ministers and missionaries need to be visionaries who cast vision and inspire their people to do great things. To impact their lives in ways that move them to get involved and to take action for the mission or for the ministry. And the fear that was instilled in every one of us is that if you are not such a visionary minister or a visionary missionary, your ministry will be doomed to fail. Now, I suppose that there is some application, some truth to this kind of uh, reasoning, but it doesn't hold true, at least 
entirely true from a biblical point of view. Where there is no vision, the people perish has been hijacked by the corporate world and hijacked by the corporate church to say and do things that the writer of Proverbs never intended, more specifically, that the Holy Spirit never intended. The proverb has in mind a different kind of vision, not a personal, individual vision that arises from a man's creative and innovative juices, but a prophetic and redemptive revelation that arises from the heart and the mind of God. As the rest of that proverb says, happy is he that keeps the law. Where there is no vision, the people perish, but happy is he that keeps the law. In other words, the vision that saves the people of God is the vision that God reveals in his word. The vision that God's messengers preach to his people. The vision that calls God's people to obey God's word. That's where life is found. So what does that have to do with Acts 26 and the story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus? Well, as you heard in the reading of this story, this story is filled with visionary concepts. You heard words related to seeing, such as I saw, the word appeared, witness, opened the eyes, heavenly vision. And it is this vision of Jesus Christ, what Paul calls this heavenly vision that makes all the difference in Paul's life. Even in the telling of the story, he is wandering in blindness, describing his life before Jesus appeared to him as a life that was on a reckless course. He was wreaking havoc on the church. He talks about punishing believers, locking them up, casting his vote against them, trying to make them curse God, that he persecuted them. That's how he characterized his life. He was a blind man who thought he saw clearly. If you break down the activities of Paul before Christ came in his life, you would be forced to draw this conclusion, no matter how ugly it seems, that Paul was a terrorist. He was a violent enemy of Jesus Christ and the church. He embodied this parable that where there is no vision, the people perish. They cast off restraint. They are cursed. But it was after Jesus appeared to him that everything began to change in his life. At that high noon showdown, long before Westerns seized, meet you at high noon. Here Jesus and Paul meet at high noon and Paul encounters the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was in this encounter that he began to experience the rest of that proverb. Happy is he who keeps the law. Paul was restrained by the Lord Jesus Christ after he encountered him on the road. Paul was reined in by the love of God in Jesus Christ. And Paul was himself blessed by the word of the Lord. Now, in this encounter, you have what some people would call a picture of what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. And that would be true if we were dealing with two equally matched opponents. 
But contrary to Paul's imagination, Jesus Christ was not his equal and opposite as an opponent. What he discovered is that he himself was no match for Jesus Christ. So when Jesus appeared to him in all of his radiant glory, what did Paul do? What was his response? He crumpled and fell to the ground and put his face in the dirt. And then he describes the things that happened in the next few moments. In theological terms, we would say that Paul experienced irresistible grace, effectual calling and regeneration. Very fancy ways of talking about Paul experiencing a radical transformation of life from the inside out. This is a work of grace in his life, not something he could do for himself. We say irresistible grace because he was enabled. He was given the ability to see and hear the Lord Jesus Christ in ways he had never seen or heard him before. He was blind to the glorious light of Christ that had already been shining. It's not that the light had not been shining to this point. It's that Paul had the inability to see the light. But now in Christ's grace, he is given the ability to see and hear the word of Jesus Christ. We say effectual calling because others experience this. They heard a sound. They saw a flash of light. But it's effectual calling because Jesus singled out Paul in this story by saying to him, calling him by name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus made this very personal. This is effectual calling. It's effectual calling also because this is not the first time that Paul has encountered Jesus. It's simply the first time that he encountered Jesus with any effect of change in his life. Remember earlier in the story, Paul heard Stephen, the martyr, preach the gospel of grace and draw everyone's attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his flesh, in his inability, in his spiritual blindness, in his sin, Paul rejected everything Stephen said. But now the calling is effectual. Jesus has opened the eyes of a man who considered himself to be seeing. And he is blinded by the light so that he can see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we say regeneration because Paul's attitude and disposition towards Jesus changed immediately, changed radically on the spot. He was born anew from above. This new birth came to him from the outside in. It didn't arise from within him, from a decision he made. It's not like he instantly said, oh, I was just kidding about all that persecution. Now I see what I need to do and I'm going to make a decision to follow you. No, his decision to follow Jesus was based on Jesus's prior decision to call Saul by name and bring him into his life and mission. And so it's all of this kindness from the Lord that led him to repentance. It led him to turn away from himself and trust in the sovereign Lord. It turned him from his sins and he trusted in his savior, Jesus Christ.
And so by the grace of God, Paul experienced a radical transformation of heart, mind, soul and body. And we must conclude based on what Paul says here, that it also included a transformation of his life and his purpose. As he summarized this experience, I was obedient to the heavenly vision and he obeyed the heavenly vision for the glory of God, for the good of himself and for the good of the world. So again, I say to you where there is no vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, the people cast off restraint and perish. But where there is vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, people are reined in and brought into submission under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. And there they find life. Well, I suppose that this is as good a time as any to tell you about some things that have occurred in my my spiritual life over the last several months. And I say a good a time as any because it fits, I think, somewhat decently with this story. Some of you know, if you go back to spring, you can remember we had conversations about it. We prayed with each other about this. Uh, But towards the end of spring, I felt in my bones that something was terribly wrong with me. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Uh, I was feeling a bit frayed around the edges. And as I was as if I were starting to uh, sort of unravel and even unhinge a little bit. It was in the month of June that I hit a wall and I experienced a variety of physical ailments that stopped me down, caused me to put the brakes on. And I found myself in those days sort of going through the motions, running on fumes, trying to make sense of of life. That's, by the way, that's one reason we had so many different men come and preach. Our session wanted to give me some relief and a chance to sort through some of these things. And I was thinking through uh, these kinds of things as we worked our way through, um, through the book of Acts. And then we came into the month of July. And out of the blue, I felt a new spark of life and hope. And I won't take you back through all of the Uh, reasons for that, but I want to point to one thing that initially ignited this little spark. As we were making our way through the book of Acts, looking at the story of Stephen, I was going to phone it in. I actually thought, I've got to phone it in this week. I've got two or three sermons on the book of Acts chapter 7. I'll just preach one of those. No one will know the difference, and we'll just move on to the next week. But as I read Acts 7 again, it became clear to me that that was not going to happen because something happened in that story. As I looked at the story of the death of Stephen, something gripped my imagination and something kind of started stirring in me. And believe it or not, it was not the prospect of death that gave me hope, but it was the promise of life in Christ that began to give me hope again. In other words, I started to feel a renewed sense of purpose in life and in doctrine and in ministry. But it came in a way that I didn't expect. At the end of Stephen's life, you remember this, at the end of Stephen's life, when all hell was unleashed against him and death was inescapable and people were shouting and rocks were coming at his head. Stephen was at peace in the midst of that storm. Stephen experienced shalom. 
And the reason he experienced shalom, this full peace of God, is because he saw the Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up, exalted. He saw Jesus in his glorious state, and that is what made all the difference in him. And I got to tell you, it didn't just make a difference in his life and put his life and death in perspective. It also began to work on me and to put things in perspective in ways that they hadn't for a long time. So not long after Stephen saw the Lord and fell asleep in him, as you go forward a little bit in the story, you see that Paul fell down like a dead man before the Lord when he saw him. Paul saw the same thing Stephen saw. And when Stephen saw the Lord Jesus high and lifted up, he knew that Jesus was calling him home and he felt a sense of peace. When Paul, the unbeliever, saw Jesus in that same glorious state, he was unnerved and collapsed to the ground like a dead man. What I want to suggest to you in the minutes we have remaining is that it's precisely this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ that needs to be held up in front of us, before our eyes, before our hearts. It's this vision of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ that will, over time, work on us to reshape our hearts and reshape our lives, reshape the mission and purpose we have in the world. It is precisely this kind of vision of the Lord Jesus Christ that that will move us to repent our sins and pursue holiness. Not long ago, I had an opportunity, uh, made a new friend, and turns out it was a new friend that I had a connection to some 25 years ago. I'll tell you that story another time. But when he and I realized we had this long history and this long connection through his grandfather, we spent some extra time together walking around. And one of the things that came up was this notion of the beatific vision, this notion that God has set before us the promise throughout Scripture that he wants to have face to face communion with us. He wants to have face-to-face communion with His people. He wants us to see Him and live. He wants us to see Him and be transformed by it. And so He holds out before us the promise that we someday will see Him and be in face-to-face communion with Him. And i got to confess that for many years of my ministry, I would say up until the month of July of this year, somehow I had missed that. Somehow I'd miss that. And for all of my talk about how theology cannot be an end of its end in and of itself, it's a means to an end. I didn't actually know where it was ending, where it went. For all the talk about how mission can't be an end in itself, it's a means to an end. And worship can't be an end in itself, it's a means to an end. In my own thinking, I don't think I ever considered what the end was or is. In our Westminster Shorter Catechism, we ask the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's a good answer as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. Because you see in the answer, it's still the end of man is something that we must do. It's still something we must do and not simply something we get to enjoy and experience. And throughout Christian history, people have tapped into what Stephen and the prophets, Moses, Isaiah and Ezekiel saw. And they've said that must be the end goal of our life and mission. That must be the purpose of life is to see God. 
That is certainly the promise held out to us in Scripture. So what is it that Paul saw on that day? What is it that he saw that that unnerved him and broke him down? What he saw was a thing that we read. You heard this in the scripture reading before the sermon. It comes from Ezekiel chapter one. This is what Paul saw. He got a glimpse of this, at least that there was the likeness of a throne and appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance and upward from what had the appearance of his waist. I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist. I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him like the appearance of the rainbow that is in the cloud on a day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. What did Paul see on the road to Damascus? While he was on his reckless tour, he saw the glory of God in the flesh of Jesus Christ. He saw the glory of God in the flesh of Jesus Christ. It was in that moment that he had a taste of face to face communion with God. He saw the end goal of his life. He saw the end goal of human experience. It is to see God. The trouble with us is that we live in vanity fair. We live in vanity fair. We live where heaven is eclipsed by the world, by the flesh and by the devil. We are so easily distracted by the things of earth. And not only are we easily distracted by the things of earth, we are delighted by the distractions of the things of earth. Our heart, mind and soul crave something bigger, something truer, something better outside of ourselves. And so we go on a quest to find it and we seek after it. But we tend to seek after it in all the wrong places. We were made by God to seek after and enjoy truth and beauty and goodness. And yet ever since the fall, we have settled for lesser things. We've settled for true lies, photoshopped beauty. Breaking bad and other things along those lines. We settle for lesser things. We live in a visually stimulated world that is blinding us to the things of God. The heavenly vision is being eclipsed by things as small as earthly videos constantly before our waking eyes. We are consumed with and overwhelmed by Technology, among other things, but to pick on one, technology has gotten in the way of a true and better theology. We're created for face to face communion with God, and yet we settle for counterfeit stories and cheap knockoffs of the gods and goddesses around us. And we might be putting up resistance. Some of you in your hearts might be saying, hey, whoa, 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 tap the brakes, man. 
But if you don't believe me, I ask you to ask yourselves why you search and search and search on the Internet. What are you looking for? And why you scroll endlessly on your phone? There seems to be no bottom there. And it's difficult to find the top again. Why do you stay awake so late? Working, fretting, worrying. Why do you stare at screens without ceasing? Why do you allow your children to do so? Why do you scramble to see the next must-see thing, whatever that happens to be for you? And why do you struggle to focus on the gospel of grace with all of its glories? And then strain to see the glories of heaven offered to you in Jesus Christ. You know what I'm talking about, right? You know how heaven is being eclipsed from your eyes, from your heart, from your mind. This is the work of the enemy to distract us and to help us find delights in lesser things. This is the same kind of thing Paul was going through in his life. He did it all in the name of religion. He did it all in the name of zeal. He thought that what he was doing, he was doing in the name of God. In other words, he claimed that God wanted him to do those things. I'm a pastor and I get caught in this trap of trying to discover the next thing, the next theological insight, the next the next truth, the next doctrine, the next practice, the next the next thing that maybe our generation has forgotten, but others knew about. And all the while, heaven is being eclipsed. It can happen in other ways as well. You know, what we're like we're like the children in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. We're like the children who looked into the mirror of Irised. The mirror of Irised shows us nothing more or less than the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts. For example, one who had never known his family would see his family standing around him. And one who had always been overshadowed by his older brothers would see himself standing alone, the best of all of his brothers. However, this mirror gives us neither knowledge or truth. As Dumbledore explained to Harry Potter, men have wasted away before it, entranced by what they have seen or been driven mad, not knowing if what it shows is real or even possible. The genius of the name of this mirror, the mirror of Irised, is that Irised is simply the word desire spelled backwards. As Dumbledore warned Harry, gazing into the mirror of your own desires is a dangerous, if not deadly affair. He says it this way, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. Remember that. Now, our mirror of Erised, our mirror of desire, comes in many shapes and sizes. 
Again, for Paul, it looked like religious zeal. For some others, it looks like a smartphone or social media or YouTube or Netflix. For others, it looks like the bottom of a glass or feels like the end of a needle or shines like the next sexy model on that page. For others, it looks like academic achievement or reading big fat books or playing sports or creating music or making money or raising a family. It goes on and on and on. What is the mirror of your desire? What is it you're looking for? Take inventory of your life. Look at your life. Look at your habits. Look at your activities and ask this question. What is distracting me from seeking the heavenly vision? What is delighting me more than obeying the heavenly vision? And whatever it is, break it off, cut it out, disconnect it. And before you tell me that you're not like the apostles and prophets who saw the Lord and you don't have the advantage and privilege they had. Let me remind you that God who said, let light shine out of darkness has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are called to gaze into the mirror, but not just any mirror. We are, caused, we are called to gaze into the mirror of divine revelation. And it is there that God's light shines in our hearts through the gospel of grace preached to us, sprinkled and poured upon us, touched and tasted and drunk by us. The word and the sacraments give us flashes of the heavenly vision week in and week out, day in and day out. And we're reminded that where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no revelation of Jesus Christ, the world falls into ruin and decay. But the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ has a way of putting everything in fresh new perspective for us. As we often sing, and I'm very fond of this song because I remember one of the first times we sang it together. We often sing, turn your eyes on Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The reason the things of the earth seem so bright and shiny and interesting to us is because we haven't consistently enough turned our faces to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're captivated by the blinking lights and trinkets and doodads of this world. And all the while, the brightness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus is shining around us. We are called to higher and truer and better things. And today I want to remind you of that, that this is the very thing that the Holy Spirit calls us to do. If you have been raised with Jesus Christ, and you have been, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also 
will appear with Him in glory. We always find what we seek, don't we? We always find what we seek, whether good or bad. We find what we seek when we seek it with all of our hearts. And I want to urge you with all of your heart to seek the face of the Lord Jesus Christ while he may be found. And you can rest assured that you will find what you are seeking for. This is his promise to you. Let us pray together.